Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of the All In for Citrus podcast. We've got a great episode today talking about some really interesting projects, um, looking at the movement of sugar in plants, also some projects looking at therapeutics. But as always, we're going to start with Dr. Michael Rogers, the center director um, for the uh, Citrus Research and Education Center. Dr. Rogers, first and foremost, how are you doing? Uh, Doing fine, Taylor. Thank you for having me on today. We're going to get an update from you today. Usually we try to hit multiple topics, but we wanted to touch base on on one that you guys have uh, finally uh, gotten some significant data from, and that is the um, Nutrition Box program. Um, talk about this program. You guys have been doing it for over a year now. Are we at a year? Yes. The uh, Citrus Nutrient Management Program, or we're calling it the, the Nutrition Box program, started back in um, October of 2019, um, before all this pandemic and things we've been going through lately is kind of bogged us down. But um, back in, in, in fall of 2019, we, we started off uh, holding meetings around the state with growers to talk about uh, nutrient management, why it's so important, and how we can um, improve our nutrition programs to improve the health of HLB-infected trees. And, and it's really important um, because right now, you know, we've got a lot of research going on, looking at different things, different developing new tools that can be used for HLB. But the easiest thing that growers can do right now to keep those trees productive in the meantime is, is their fertilization practices. You know, making sure they're fine-tuned, giving the trees what they need so they can stand a chance and, and continue to grow through citrus greening disease. And I, I know most growers have, have figured out that, you know, the, one of the keys, the starting point is really the frequent small doses of, of, of fertilizer or fertigation. Um, well, fertigation or, or dry fertilizer, but, but, you know, spoon feeding those plants. But it, but it really goes beyond just the spoon feeding, um, you know, providing what the, the trees can take up at a given time. Um, you have to have the right balance of nutrients. And, you know, you can actually spend a lot of money on fertilization programs and, and maybe be putting out too much, more than your plants need. And, you know, that, that, that can result, one, in wasting money that you don't need to put out there. But also, you can't have too much of a good thing, and you can end up with some phytotoxicities or other problems. Some of these inter- some of these nutrients can interact with each other and limit the uptake of others. So, it's a, there's a balance that needs to be achieved to keep those those plants growing and growing optimally um, with citrus screening um, present. So we've we've actually um, in in starting in 2019 in the fall we I think there was three meetings around the state and the growers came in um, listened to the presentations and then were able to pick up these these nutrition kits the sampling kits and go back and start sampling their groves uh, for uh, both soil and some leaf leaf nutrient analyses um, we had uh, I think right now we're at about 75 groves from 17 counties around the state are participating in the program. And, and, and what that what that involves is, you know, the growers um, on a set schedule are going to their in, out in their groves, collecting the, the leaf or soil sample, milling it um, in the material in the shipping containers we've given them to a, a, a lab that's participating uh, that we're paying for this. IPIS is paying for this right now um, to get those those uh, samples processed and analyzed. And the results then go back to UF. Um, and we have a team of, of both faculty and citrus agents that work together. They're getting getting together every couple of weeks, um, looking at the results that come in um, from the lab 
And as a team, they, they develop a, a set of recommendations for each grove. The, these are grove-specific recommendations um, that are then sh- uh, sent back to the grower by the, the agent uh, for that particular area. And it's worked out really well. Um, we've seen some very interesting things come out of it because, um, and, you know, as our team gets together, we've, this is uh, led, we've got some faculty members, uh, Dr. Tripti Bashish, uh, Dr. David Kadiampakini, and um, also uh, uh, one of our, our staff, uh, Ms. Jamie Burroughs, also involved with that. Um, uh, and by the way, Jamie is now a Ph.D. student um, who's uh, this is part of her Ph.D. research. So uh, she's really involved in this. And, and of course, the agents and and they have to get together and put their heads together at times to look at some of the interesting problems that pop up on individual groves and try to come up with a way to correct some of these nutritional issues that are that are turning up. So it's been a really interesting exercise to see this this play out. We didn't know what to expect, but I think most of the growers who are participating um, either are learning something or maybe having what they thought was correct be confirmed. And it's I think it's been uh, very well received by the growers who are participating so far. Uh, it's it's good, and it's good you guys had uh, some decent per, um, participation there. Are you guys still accepting uh, growers who may be interested in doing this? Yes, um, we, we cut it off in, in 2020, um, but uh, now as we're starting the new year, um, we have opened it back up. There is a deadline. If, if growers who are not already participating in this want to participate, um, they have until January 31st of 2021, just a couple weeks away, um, to sign up for the program. And if they're interested in signing up, what they need to do is uh, reach out uh, to your local uh, citrus extension agent. Um, and I think everybody knows who your agents are, but uh, this is this would be uh, uh, Chris Oswalt, Asia Paolillo, Juanita Popino, Amir Reza Zeta, Matt Smith, Daniel Sprague, or Manji Zekri. And they can get you lined up, signed up for the program, and work with you to get your, your kits. They're, they're going to be mailed out in February. Um, but again, we've time to sign up is, is quickly. The deadline is approaching, again, January 31st. And because um, we need to get this going so we can start getting samples collected this, this early this year and follow it for the, for the full year. Uh, a project like this, critical information you're getting from the field, uh, and the growers are helping you guys save time and money by by pulling these samples and getting it to you. I mean, this is this is kind of invaluable information. Yeah, I think both both groups benefit, both growers and and the research benefits from this. Um, obviously, from the standpoint of, of the grower, um, knowing what's going on in your grove um, is going to help you uh, do a better job of, of managing not only the nutrition but the cost involved. And make sure that you're doing the right thing. And from the research standpoint, you know, we've got sites across the state, different varieties, different rootstock sign combinations, different soil types. You know, we're able to look at a big picture on this and try to tease out some some differences that occur around the state that might need to be considered down the road. And and we're, we're seeing overall um, the nu- nutrient levels um, across the board. Most growers are staying within the ranges that are recommended for the nutrients. But um, but we still do see some differences in different parts of the state. And um, and just for example, um, you know, uh, copper is one of the nutrients. Uh, we tend to see uh, uh, higher levels of copper, you know, higher than are recommended primarily in some of our fresh fruit groves, um, especially grapefruit. And so we've been working with growers trying to help correct some of those issues before they, they lead to tox, you know, copper toxicity um, in, in the plants. Um, some other nutrients that are um, showing up as potential problems. Um, we've seen what we're, I was talking there about copper being high. 
Um, we've seen a number of places around the state where iron um, is actually lower uh, than it needs to be. Um, and there's some some ways to correct that that we're talking to growers about. Um, it may be changing the form of of um, you know using chelated iron so it's more soluble and easy to take up. Um, but there's also interactions with soil type and and other nutrients. If you're over applying certain nutrients, it can limit uh, the uptake of iron. So um, those are some examples like of a case by case situations where our, our agents and and our researchers are getting together to try to figure out how to resolve things like low iron. So a grower can get better use, uh, those iron levels up to where they need to be. Um, there's also a, another one we're seeing um, uh, actually on the high side is boron um, in some of our uh, samples around the state. I think almost 30% of the samples in a, a certain parts of the state are coming back high for boron. Um, we've not seen any issues in terms of toxicity from this study yet with boron, but but it can cause problems. And we have, outside of this program, we have seen growers with problems with boron toxicity. And, you know, boron has been something growers have been interested in because there's been a lot of work in the past showing that um, using higher rates of boron uh, can actually um, have a beneficial effect for HLB affected plants, but you don't want to go too high. And uh, so it's important to be you know, monitoring those, those boron levels because they can accumulate year after year um, and uh, so, you know, if there's cases where we're seeing the boron creep up, you know, we need to cut back a little bit on those boron levels so we don't end up with a, a toxic situation for the plant. That and the other thing that we're seeing also, uh, some of the areas, the, some issues with soil pH is also popping up. And, and actually the issues mostly relate to lower than desired soil pH. Um, we know that soil acidification is important, you know, for, the, for HLB affected plants. Um, you know, having the right, having a, a, a pH at, down to a certain level helps nutrient uptake, but it also, if you get too low, it can cause problems. And so we've seen some cases where some growers actually their pH has gotten too low. And so we're, you know, providing guidance on how to back off that a little bit, you know, get those numbers up a little, little bit. So the, so everything stays in the right balance. So uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out of this. And, um, you know, we're going to continue to look at these trends around the state, working with growers on their site specific uh, programs to make sure that, that everything is in the right balance and everybody's doing the right thing. And um, so we're, we're very, you know, happy with the way this has gone the first year and, and we're excited to enroll some more people if they're interested uh, for the coming 2021. Um, we saw this, like, for example, you look back to the Chima program, uh, the first year we ever did Chimas, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of people sign up. They wanted to see how things went and we weren't sure how it was going to go. But as, as we saw the benefits, you know, the participation took off. And I think it's going to be the same thing with the, the nutrition program. Uh, we're definitely getting a lot of benefits out of this. I think people have, have gotten a lot of useful information out of this. And, and so look forward to uh, getting more people sign up if you're interested. And again, that, that deadline is uh, January 31st, so it's coming up. So reach out to your local extension agents and sign up if you're interested. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are getting a lot of good information from that. Um, just real quick before we end here, uh, as we always want to be cognizant of the producer's time, uh, sounds like this is pretty easy to do. You guys e- mail out what they need. They take the sample, send it back. Yes, and um, so the, the nutrition box, the kit, you know, has everything they need to uh, collect the samples and then just ship them off. Uh, I think they'll have to pay for the shipping. But from that point, you know, right now um, for the samples that are part of this program, um, we're paying for that ourselves at IFAS um, as a service this year. And um, and again, we, we the lab gets the samples, they process them, we're paying the lab. 
They send the results to us, and then we customize that program or those recommendations to send back to the grower on what the next step should do the next time they need to be in the grove fertilizing. So uh, um, down the road, right now, you know, right now we're talking a lot about the results we're seeing in terms of um, nutrient levels in the plants. You know, as we start to hit year two or year three of this program, that's when we're going to start to see hopefully those those impacts in terms of yield. You know, it takes a while for to get those trees healthier. And then down the road after it takes more than a year, but we'll start hopefully start to see the value in terms of increased yields and better fruit quality. So we're excited to see this go, uh, continue on for the future. Very good information. And again, if you want to take part in this um, box program, uh, January 31st is the deadline. Contact your local citrus agent. And again, uh, CREC Center Director, Dr. Michael Rogers, thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Taylor. We're now joined by Dr. Christopher Vincent, Assistant Professor of Horticultural Science at the UF IFAS Lake Alfred Center. Uh, Dr. Vincent, first of all, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. We're going to talk about a couple of things that you guys are doing. The first is uh, shade work, which is uh, some of the stuff that we've uh, talked to you about before, had in our magazine as well. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the shade work, talk about what this is looking at. Sure. So citrus is well adapted to uh, grow in partial shade and, and yield well in partial shade, just in terms of where it comes from, its natural habitat. And the as we began to assess what HLB does to plants, we began to realize that probably shade uh, could have an additional benefit in terms of the management of the health of HLB affected plants as well. So we looked into uh, sort of how trees respond in terms of growth, in terms of yield, uh, as well in terms as in terms of physiological responses to varying degrees of shade, because we knew that there could be a benefit from shade, but as with anything, you can have too much of a good thing. So uh, we looked at different levels of shade out in the field. Uh, we were using HLB affected, uh, young but mature Hamlin trees. And, and then we looked at their sort of growth recovery um, and physiology over the course of, at this point, it's been just over two years that we've been looking at these trees. And uh, we also did, did a few other studies, including things like going into natural areas, uh, forested hammock regions that had feral citrus trees growing there. And we found uh, very low rates of infection with the Liberobacter bacterium that causes HLB. And uh, we think at this point that that's probably due to the restriction that uh, that environment puts on the movement of uh, the psyllids that transmit Liberobacter. Uh, in terms of how shade affects the plant though, uh, we found that uh, with increasing shade, you get a better sort of uh, photochemical performance. So that's uh, how the, the pigments in the, the leaves are, are functioning in terms of providing uh, photosynthetic activity. And then in our field study where we did controlled shade, uh, we found similar results in terms of photochemical performance. We found a pretty dramatic increase in yield of those trees, at least at the lowest shade level. So uh, there's a big difference when you go from uh, no shade to 30% shade. And then the benefits uh, wear off and perhaps even decrease in terms of yield 
uh, we suspect that that's due to a reduction in flowering, but, uh, but there's a lot more to look at there. In terms of their physiological responses, we see uh, a lot less oxidative stress uh, in the leaves in response to uh, these shade treatments. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I think you can logically wrap your head around the fact that some shade would help the tree grow better. It would it would change some things in the production. But as far as the impacting psyllids, I, I would have never thought of that. That is very interesting. Yeah. So based on work by other people, not by not by me, there's a fair amount of evidence that psyllids have more difficulty perceiving the presence of a citrus tree. Basically, they don't see it as well when it's in the shade. And uh, so we think that that essentially provides kind of like a, not exactly a camouflage, but but uh, basically this the psyllids can't find it as easily. Not to mention in a forested area, you just have actual other trees between the psyllids and, and the citrus tree, right? So they have to move more into that forest before they realize that there's a citrus tree there. Uh, so we think that that has contributed to much lower rates of infection in the natural areas. As far as in terms of working in groves, um, you're looking at netting as, as a way to do some of this shading, right? Yeah. So, so the way we've done it so far is we just use a spectrum neutral shade. And the reason we chose that is not because we thought it was horticulturally optimum, but it was optimum in terms of we know that whatever effect occurs here is just because of the quantity of light. Now, if you were going to go for a more horticulturally optimal netting, you would choose something that actually created uh, both shade and more dispersed or diffuse light. Uh, and lots of products like that exist. Um, but, but what we were going for was just that, uh, just to confirm the impact of the, the overall light level. Uh, we're also looking into the, the impacts of intercropping. In other words, growing other trees near the citrus tree uh, in order to provide some of those benefits. Um, each of those approaches could have a lot of challenges associated with it, right? So there's a cost associated with erecting a, a net over, over your growth. Um, it would be something similar to building a CUPS, a citrus under protective screen, be maybe uh, less costly, but still a significant cost. And um, on, on the other hand, uh, planting other species of tree to provide shade or, or something like that, um, uh, bring the added cost of, you have, to, you have to design your planting in a particular way. Um, and, uh, and you may, depending on the tree species, lose productive area, right? So we're looking into all of these trade-offs and realizing that growers have a lot of different things to manage in, in pursuit of that, uh, of profit. Uh, so, so there are challenges to implementing either way that you would try to go about getting shade. And a third option is not, is not traditionally necessarily thought of as shade, but, uh, essentially works that way, which is the use of particle films. We've done a fair amount of research on particle films, uh, which are essentially, uh, in our case, they're just clay suspensions that are sprayed onto the leaves. They dry there, they harden there, and they uh, reflect the light. And so that will provide both more diffuse light. So uh, 
parts of the canopy that would normally be shaded under diffuse light get more light. Uh, and it would also uh, provide a shading effect for the parts of the canopy that would be getting uh, excess light. And uh, we found that uh, particle films also uh, enhance growth pretty dramatically and yield as well. Uh, we're, we just finished the third full year of a, of a trial, an establishment trial using particle that's exciting. I, I know oftentimes you do the research to prove that the method has some benefit to it. And then you often have to look at an economic analysis of, of right. what it costs for the grower to implement that. Well, that's exciting. I know you guys wrote for uh, the magazine back in August. We're looking forward to those results. The other thing you guys are wrapping up here pretty soon is the antibiotic delivery um, through foliar sprays. You guys are wrapping that up here pretty soon? Yeah, we're in the final stages of that. We've actually completed all of the field work. Um, and now we're just, uh, uh, well, actually, uh, Nabil Kalini's lab, who Nabil's my collaborator on this uh, antibiotics project. Uh, his lab is, is now finishing up the uh, Liberobacter quantification and the, and the quantification of uh, oxytetracycline in, in one experiment and streptomycin in, in two experiments. We completed one large experiment uh, we, and, and we finished the results from those. I presented those in a couple of different venues. And then uh, we've got two more experiments that are completed that we're just kind of waiting for the final data on. That's exciting. Uh, uh, I know a lot of people have been awaiting those results uh, just kind of early. Obviously, you you can't uh, you know say everything yet, but just kind of early thing. How does this looking? Is it looking like a viable option? Looking at uh, previous studies, which had uh, compared, say, injection of antibiotic products with, with foliar sprays, usually with one foliar spray comparison, right? So they would choose one adjuvant that, that had been recommended and then compare that with, with injection. And, and our concern was that with not assessing the variety of adjuvants that exist, we weren't really sure whether the adjuvant that had been chosen was the best comparison in terms of assessing foliar sprays. So what we did was we ass assessed injection as well as all of the commercial adjuvants. So we compared them all and our objective was both to compare them to injection in terms of efficacy, but also to compare them to each other in terms of efficacy to be able to recommend to growers what the optimum adjuvants were. Unfortunately, in terms of systemic delivery uh, of oxytetracycline is the only thing that we have the results from uh, in our experiment, none of the adjuvants significantly increase the delivery of oxytetracycline. So over water uh, and the, and the delivery was uh, extremely low. When we looked at uh, Liberobacter titer, so that's the bacterial population, the only treatment of all of our treatments that actually reduced the Liberobacter population was the injection. None of the other treatments had any observable effect at all. Uh, so um, not particularly optimistic uh, results in, in that case. We have a follow-up study to sort of uh, try to confirm and or, or not the results of the initial study because you know we want to have as strong evidence as we can uh, for any kind of conclusions that we draw, we don't want to draw conclusions based on a misfire. But uh, but the 
the initial study basically uh, indicated that there was not significant delivery of oxytetracycline via foliar application. Hey, sometimes proving the negative is just as valuable as, as finding something new too. Something way down the road that you guys are, are looking at. Uh, you guys recently got a grant and are able to look at some of the sugar movement uh, in plants. Talk about what this will be looking at. I know you guys haven't really started this yet, but talk about what this is going to be looking at. Yeah. So if it's okay, I'll actually back up a little bit and, sure. and ex explain a little bit of background. So because of the impact of HLB on the citrus industry, our lab has been driven to look at, at two things in particular, and that is uh, photosynthesis and uh, the movement of sugars. So we've developed a series of methodologies to look at uh, these two things. And it turns out these two things are very closely connected. So a plant can photosynthesize at a relatively high rate, but it, it will actually be limited in terms of its photosynthetic capacity by how much sugar it can move out of the leaf because it's investing, you can think of it like an investor, right? Uh, it's investing resources, uh, that would be protein and water in producing sugars. But if it can't move those sugars from the leaf to the roots or the fruits or the new shoots, then there's no point in making that investment. So it will actually downregulate photosynthesis uh, in order to uh, conserve those resources because, uh, because it's unable to move those sugars to a place where they'd be useful. So that's, that's part of what's going on in HLB is that as the bacterial infection limits the ability of the plant to move sugars from the leaf to the sinks, uh, then the plant begins to downregulate photosynthesis uh, because those sugars, uh, the only thing they do is sort of over accumulating the leaves. Uh, so that's sort of that's sort of the background is this connection between uh, photosynthesis and uh, carbohydrate transport. Uh, the project that we're looking at right now does not deal directly with HLB, but rather looks at the this effect on uh, population scale, because we think that uh, we can actually manipulate growth rates by affecting uh, how plants allocate uh, to their carbohydrates to different sinks. And so the, the basic idea is that if we can manipulate plants to uh, have a more rapid uh, carbohydrate transport, then we can induce them to naturally upregulate photosynthesis because their plants rarely are operating at their maximum photosynthetic capacity. And so we think that we can actually, manip by manipulating essentially the overall structure of the plant, we can actually get them to be moving those sugars out of the leaves faster and therefore upregulate photosynthesis and hence total growth. So if, a, if the disease is limiting the plant by a certain percentage, what you guys are looking at is increasing that efficiency so that percentage still may be happening, but it's happening at a higher level because you are increasing the efficiency of the plant moving that stuff. Yeah. So, so the project that we have right now will not be looking at the effect of the disease. It will just be looking at uh, how say having a larger root system to pull those, those sugars uh, faster from the leaves to the, to the roots. Um, how 
much you can manipulate that in order to get faster transport and whether there are natural, what we call transport limitations. So in other words, uh, the plant hypothetically has a limit to how much sugar it could move through its trunk, if any given plant does. Um, but we don't actually know what that limit is. And so we think that by manipulating, say, the, the leaf area relative to the, to the root size or, or other sink size, so the other sink fruits and, and new shoots, we can then uh, actually enhance that overall growth. Being able to identify that transport limitation will help us understand HLB better as well. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the things I was going to mention before we started talking about this is I think you're starting to see a lot of research kind of look at that flow of the tree and all that. And that's that's exciting. It's 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 something that's going to help hopefully growers manage this disease um, as we move forward. Again, uh, UF IFAS uh, Assistant Professor of Horticultural Sciences at Lake Alfred, Dr. Christopher Vincent. Dr. Vincent, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Taylor. We're now going to jump over to Dr. Lorenzo Rossi of the Indian River Research and Education Center. Stay on the topic of some grants, uh, grant-funded research. Dr. Rossi, first of all, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. So we're talking about a uh, grant that you guys got into some very interesting research, which is going to help evaluate some efficacy issues that we see out there. Uh, you're the lead investigator on a project. Tell me what this is going to be doing. All right, so this is a big project, and um, the project director is Dr. Shatters over the USDA here in Fort Pierce, and I'm the principal investigator for UF, and uh, I take care of the, all the field studies for this specific project. And the idea is to have a project that will help us testing uh, compounds and molecules that can have an effect on HLB. So the good thing about this project is that if there are people, if there are growers that have a compounds that they believe have an effect against the HLB, the citrus greenie, they can bring their compound to us, UF, or to Dr. Shatter or USDA, and we will, we will evaluate these compounds uh, with field studies. Some of these compounds you already have identified, um, is this something that is needed? What is the issue that we see so far in this? So far, we, the issue is that we don't really have a cure. So we, we saw some bactericides, we saw some antibiotics that can have an effect, but we don't really have a compound that is specific for HLB. And so that was the idea of the project. And also, during the past year, we saw a lot of interest in oak extract. So the idea that natural compounds may have bactericide uh, potential. They may have a bactericide action that can kill the, the bacteria that are responsible for HLB. And the idea of testing these compounds in the field is, is really, really uh, innovative for us. Yeah, because a lot of you guys' work is in the lab, but being able to test these compounds in the field, that's what's exciting here. Yes, that's, that's the, 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 the biggest part of the project is the field study. And particularly what we will do here with UF is, is more about the plant physiology part. So how the trees are actually reacting to this compound in terms of um, root growth and development, in terms of overall tree health and physiology. 
and also in terms of yield, I mean, if we see an increase in the production and um, and when we saw that, of course, we have also all the extension components. So to translate what we found and to make the to make we need to make the information available for for the grower, for the general public. So if anybody is listening and they have a compound suggestion, uh, you guys are looking for those suggestions to use here. Yes, we are open to those suggestions, and I'm pretty sure the USDA. They are coordinating, we are all coordinating together to have a news release out soon in which we will have more information for the growers and for everybody that have a compounds or, or a product that want to be that needs to be tested. Since you're going to be coordinating with a lot of different uh, groups here, um, I, I'm assuming this might speed up the back end of this uh, trying to, if you guys are able to find something to get that going and to get a tool usable for growers, maybe that will speed up the process at the end? Well, I think one of the good things about this project and um, is that we, we there are a lot of people working on this from all over the U.S., also private companies. So if we may have a compound at work, that will speed up the process of getting that compound um, in the pipeline for use with the, with the private sector that can help. Because, you know, one of the main problems of these compounds is that to get the regulatory process approved from the government and then have it making available to the growers. Yeah, sometimes that can be a long process in itself. Yes. This is, uh, obviously, this sounds like uh, a pretty ambitious, a pretty aggressive uh, research project you guys are looking at here. I mean, is that kind of, uh, do you guys feel that way? We feel that way. I I'm, I got invited to this project. So there are people that have been working on this from several years now, particularly people from um, Cornell and here at USDA. And most of the job that they did was in the greenhouse and in the lab. So they got some really, really good data. And the idea of this project, and that's what I was invited, was to uh, expand to the field and to the extension component. So to have a project that is more available uh, and ready for, for, for growers and for, for the general public. Taking it to the next step, basically. Yes. Very good. I know we've had some COVID uh, issues, as everyone knows about. Are Have you been able to begin this yet, or are we waiting to get this started? No, we are still we are still in the process. We are. I I, I think the USDA has received the money. We are still waiting for the money. Here at UF, they are working on the contracts, the subcontracts. It's a it's a process lately. Doing everything in research and everything that. It's with the government, with the state level. It's it's slow because, as you know, COVID nineteen and making our life a little bit different. <laughs> well, fingers crossed that we can get this started soon. Yeah. Exciting research again, uh, Dr. Lorenzo Rossi, uh, plant root biologist at the Indian River Research and Education Center. Thank you, doctor, for your time. No problem. Thank you. And that'll do it for this episode of the All In for Citrus podcast as we kick off 2021. Remember to share the podcast with a friend if you think they might enjoy the content. Just have them search All In for Citrus wherever they get their podcasts. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. 